ora and welcome to the first episode of Power Up, a podcast powered by Adventure Taranaki and produced by Raw Collective. Here we celebrate the region's entrepreneurs with their trailblazing spirit and their can-do attitude. Taranaki innovators are leaving their mark on the world, but living the famous Taranaki lifestyle. I'm your host, David Downs. Taranaki is a region where the unique natural and business environments collide to create a place where people can flourish and achieve their full potential. No mai, haere mai, we welcome you to hear our enterprising future like no other. Today's guest is entrepreneur and investor Dan Radcliffe. Not to be confused with the Harry Potter actor, Dan is the founder of the world-leading volunteer travel company, International Volunteer HQ. He's a former New Zealand Entrepreneur of the Year, a member of the EY World Entrepreneur Hall of Fame, and a prominent investor in a range of businesses, both in Taranaki and around New Zealand. Dan started IVHQ in 2006. He'd recently left his graduate finance job after just three days because he could see that the likely career path and he knew that it wasn't going to be for him. So he went on a volunteer trip to Kenya and he was pretty unhappy with the service and the value for money and the poor way it was run and he knew he could do better. So International Volunteer HQ was formed. Nearly 15 years later, IVHQ has helped more than 110,000 volunteers to travel the world and make a difference. We talk about his journey starting a worldwide travel company from his family farm, the challenges in trying to revolutionise a global travel niche, selling a highly successful business, and the range of other exciting ventures he's been able to focus on now that he's out of the day-to-day running of IVHQ. Dan is a highly driven entrepreneur who's done all of this even before he's turned 40. From a farm in a place called Uruti to the glitz and glamour of the world-leading business people, Dan has achieved an incredible amount, all while staying extremely true to his roots. Okay, Dan Radcliffe, where have you just come from today? Uh, Monica's for lunch. Oh, I love Monica's. It's my favorite cafe in the whole of uh, the world, actually. What did you have? I had an omelette. So when I was full-time at IVHQ, I used to basically live there. So I'd have breakfast and lunch there. Oh, really? Now I don't have a full-time office, so I work from home a bit. So yeah. if I'm looking to escape the wife or the children, I venture Pop down, down there. to Monica's, use the Wi-Fi. Fantastic. Well, actually, the Wi-Fi doesn't work there. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I don't you know. You sort that out. You're a tech guy, aren't you? What are you doing? Uh, it's not. It's probably their job. I, I wonder if it's deliberate, because I'm sure people have told them. I would imagine they see you coming to turn the Wi-Fi off. That's probably what's happening right there. <laughs> so tell us about IVHQ you just mentioned there. That, is that some sort of artificial insemination outfit? What, what goes on? Yeah, it's, um, it's something we've done with cows down here in Taranaki. Oh, I can believe it. Yeah, it's gone pretty good. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> a volunteer travel company. So business that I started would have been 13 years ago. Yeah. And I guess the business very simply sends people abroad to volunteer. Um, we are a business, people pay to do it, based here in New Plymouth, but working in 54 countries around the world, I think. Well, right now, uh, yeah. about 30 something. Yeah, not that many. Yeah. And not many originating from New Zealand, maybe you're coming to New Zealand, I suppose. No, uh, but that's always been the case, though. So very much an international business. Um, we've always predominantly sent people abroad. We do yeah. have a New Zealand program, but... You know, in a good year when we were operating normally, it would probably receive around 200 people of 20,000. Yeah. And likewise, we'd usually send around 200 Kiwis abroad out of 20,000. So, right. So it's a, New Zealand is a very small part of the market. But why be based in New Plymouth then? I mean, why, why wouldn't you be based in London or in LA or somewhere, you know, bigger? Yeah, good question. Um, so, I mean, I'm born and bred here and I, I love the province. I love Taranaki. I'd gone to university down in Otago, done my thing, and I got a corporate job up in Auckland. So went up there as a graduate. I was a financial analyst. Well, that's what I was meant to do. Right. Um, and I headed up there and I thought, you know, I should go up there because that's what everyone else was doing as a graduate and realized when I got there that I hated it. So um, 
Like the place or the job? Uh, a bit of both. bit of both, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tararaki boy gets to the big smoke, realises it's oh, not shit. for him. It's a lot of cars. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, quit the job on my third day and rung mum and dad and told them I was coming home to the farm. I mean, they were delighted, were they? Do you know they what? just cleared out the spare room. <laughs> they, you would have thought, like I always say this, like mum and dad were very supportive and you would have thought that after having me go to university for five years and putting me through boarding school to try and give me a good education to quit my first proper job after three days, um, you would have thought they would have thrown a fit, but they're actually very supportive. And yeah, I think dad was probably actually looking forward to a bit of free labour on the farm. So, oh, that's good. So, yeah. yes, that's a good outcome for him. But yeah, I mean, that, you'd obviously been coming back and forth during the holidays of university and things like that and kept in touch with the farm life, et cetera. Yeah, and that's and that was sort of, you know, I'd always loved the farm. I, I, I got back to the farm there with mum and dad. And I sort of thought it would be a good place to base myself for a couple yep. of months while yep. I worked out what I wanted to do. And I realised while I was there, I actually really enjoyed being home as such in the in the region. That's sort of how I got Where back. is the farm? It's in uh, Uruti, which is... About 45 minutes north of here. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say you're a tea because then I was going to say, nah, you're a tea. Huh. <laughs> it's what we always used to say when we drove through there. It was like our little joke. Oh, okay. you know, but you pronounce it correctly. Thank you. Yeah, no, good. I've, I've, been, I've been trying to get better. That's good. Good on you. Go back to OVHQ. So you came back after three days of the corporate life. So basically you are you know, a corporate executive, really. Yeah, I've had and, a big career. Yeah, big career in the, in the big smoke. Came back as a successful graduate of that and decided to set up a travel company. There's a big step missing. So I was working with Dad on the farm, and I sort of, I always call this, like, I guess, my quarter-life crisis. So I was 21 or 22. I just got this good job, and I'd quit, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And here I was working back with Dad on the farm. I thought, you know, there must be something more to this. I need to work out what I'm going to do in life. Yeah. So I thought about times that I'd, I guess, learned a lot about myself or decided, you know, that pivotal moments when I'd taken, you know, gained confidence or taken a new direction. And there were times that I'd been challenged personally. So I started thinking while I was working with Dad, like what what could I do that was going to you know really throw myself out of my comfort zone? And I was watching the news one night, and I saw some people volunteering in Africa, and I thought, you know what, that's really left field. Yeah, never been to Africa. It looks bloody daunting, and not the sort of person that volunteers. You know, that was wasn't really in my DNA. I'll go to Africa and volunteer for three months. Cheapest. Just out of the blue. I'm one of those people. If I make a decision and I want to do something, I usually go and do it, which yeah. isn't always the best because sometimes you can make rash decisions. Uh, <laughs> and then you stuck with it. Yeah. yeah but I, this was a good one. Yeah, this was a good one. I started researching online, and I guess I was pretty naive at the time. I thought I'd go online, find someone, that, yep, they'd throw me on a plane, pay for me to go to Africa, pay for my meals and accommodation for three months and send me home again. Right. So I was pretty, I guess, again, I was just naive and I was really surprised to find that it was going to cost me money to do this. Yeah. And not only that, it was bloody expensive. So it was on top of the airfares, you were having to pay someone to set up the experience for you, basically. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So they, you had these companies online. I started the World Wide Web was in full swing by then. And you had these companies that were anywhere from, say, 3000 US dollars was the cheapest. That was yep. the company that I went with. Up to about fifteen grand US for that period of time, wow. which was extortionate. You know, I, I always remember I had mates going off to do their Kentucky and whatnot in Europe at the same time, and they were paying comparable sums for um, for like a twenty-one day bus tour through all the sites of Europe. Oh, or longer, or and yeah. I was going. To, I was literally going to live in a mud hut and teach at a school. Wow! I paid this money because I was nervous about going. And I was worried about, uh, you know, someone not being at the airport to pick me up. And you see, you know, rightly or wrongly, most of the stuff you see on TV around Africa, it's not too good. Yeah. And so, again, a small small boy from Taranaki, I was a bit worried about what it was going to actually be like. And I wanted that reassurance that it was all well organized. Did you get your $3,000 worth? 
Well, I did, but through good luck as opposed to good management. Right. Yeah, I jumped on the plane, headed over there, and you know the reason I'd paid all this money was for that support, and got there, and lo and behold, there's no one there to pick me up at the airport. Oh. In the middle of like this was in Nairobi, Nairobi, yeah, so yeah. big, busy airport, different language spoken. Yep, yep. Um, little country boy just arrived from Uruti, and but found a payphone because I didn't have a cell phone with me at the time. Yeah, uh, they weren't as prevalent back then. Rang the company, they came and picked me up after a couple of hours, apologised profusely, and then took me into town and took me to the family who I was going to be staying with. Well, took me out to the countryside, sorry, to the family I was going to be staying with. Got out there and surprise, surprise, they didn't know I was coming either. Oh, oh, this is not starting out yeah, well. Yeah, so, I, you know, I was, I, again, I'd been really naive about this, but, you know, in the build-up, I'd been sitting at home, and I sort of had this vision of Dan, the great white saviour, jumping on a plane and heading over to Africa to teach these kids. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you get over there, and you're a bit jet-lagged and a little bit homesick, and everything's daunting, and you're like, gee, but they didn't even know I was coming. So, yeah. so you know, you probably guessed it. The next morning, I get up and go to school, and the school didn't know I was coming either. <laughs> you sure you got the right plate? <laughs> oh, mate, you, you would have thought so. So I had this, despite all of that, I had this incredible experience, but it was really through good luck over good management. The yeah. company was incredibly disorganized. I'd paid a small fortune, but I, I loved every minute of it. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, there's a, I hadn't gone there to try and start this type of company, but I, th- I thought there's a real opportunity here to try and do this better. You know, it's cost me a fortune and it's been done really poorly. And not only that, finance had been my major at university, but you didn't need that to know or to do a, a basic cost analysis and realise yeah. there was a huge margin involved. Right. We knew what the family were being paid. We knew what the meals were costing. We knew how much the school was receiving. We said we could do some rough numbers or right. what we thought and the staff big were being in the paid. middle. That someone's taking. Yeah, so that was, um, I started having this idea that if you could create this company where you'd work with a local organisation in each country, so let's use Kenya as the example, and Kenya would work with a Kenyan organisation, they'd provide all the meals, accommodation, the placements, and if you provided them some, I guess, Western training around customer service and how to look after people. How to pick up people from the airport on time. There's a thing over there they could refer to as African time. It's like a meeting that's scheduled to start at 9, might start at 9 or it might start at 12. And unfortunately, a lot of the time they use that with their airport pickups, um, ah. which, you know, I was okay. But you get um, someone that's more nervous and, you know, most of the people who are traveling are young females yeah. out of America, quite often, you know, frantic parents. And if that happens to them, you know, you're really in it. So, yeah, they're going to they're gonna feel much more worried and insecure, et cetera. Oh, yeah. So there's so you need to get that stuff right. I so, mean, that's the basic business model, isn't it, here? You, you are providing security and peace of mind. As uh, much as you are the logistics, hundred percent. Like you want to, you, you're providing exactly security and peace of mind to people, and also I'd say a guarantee around that the actual experience. You know you, what your accommodation is going to be, and you know that your that the project is going to be worthwhile because it's been sourced by local people. Yeah. So that was when I thought if you could do this, and then and you could set up a pricing structure where you charge a fee that comes to you as the company. We call it a registration fee. It acts like a deposit. And then a program fee, which we received, but we passed it entirely on to the local team and country. Right. Then you could solve all of these issues that I'd had with the trip that I'd had, which was A, cost, you could make it a lot more affordable. Yeah. B, transparency, you'd see where the money was going, so you'd feel better about that as a traveller and a volunteer. And C, hopefully, if you did your job right and the local team did their job right, you should solve the issues around the experience. Yeah, good. So that was this, I guess, you know, people call it their light bulb moment, and that's yeah. what I had when I was over there in, in Kenya. Fantastic. So you came back on the plane, went back to the parents' farm and said, right, I've got a new idea. 
yeah, clear the kitchen table. I need it. I'm doing some planning. Yeah, and it was. Um, <laughs> I went back home full of you know gusto, and I was you know ready to do this. But I got home, and I um, I guess it suddenly sort of sunk in. You know, what, how was I going to do this? I was by this stage, I was uh, 22. Again, I just quit my job the year earlier. I had no professional experience. I had no money. I had money. Oh, yeah, those three days. Come on, don't put yourself down. <laughs> goes a long way. I had, at, this, at that time, I owed mum and dad, I think, about 15 grand from this trip. So I had no finances to get the thing started. So it made me think, how was I going to do this? And I, um, the first step was going to mum and dad with cap in hand and saying, I've got this idea, but you're going to need to let me borrow some money against the farm to get it started. Wow. Which is, uh, again, you, you know, I think most parents would probably, especially when I told them the idea, it's going to get people to pay to volunteer overseas. Most parents would kick you up the backside and send you back up to Auckland to ask for that job back. But <laughs> again, they were very supportive, took me into the bank. I signed up a $20,000 mortgage against the farm and away we went. So let's give them a name for a start, mum and dad, because I mean, they sound like pretty remarkable people. We deserve to hear a bit more about them. Sue and Spence. So Sue and Spence. <laughs> Tell us a little about them. Have, have they always been farmers in the Uriti area or have, have they been in business themselves apart from that? So mum and dad met in the wool shed. Uh, dad was a sharer and mum was a rousy. Mum was, nice. was a rousy on their school holidays and I think dad saw the opportunity and took it. Um, so. Move on. Lo <laughs> <laughs> so. and behold, here's dad. <laughs> it was actually quite funny. I think one of the reasons mum was so big on the idea of me doing this business is she'd she always said it. She always regretted. She went to university. She did a um, double major in languages, and then she met Dad in the woolshed and uh, moved back to the farm. And I think she regretted, you know, not using that her education that she had got in, in something in a more professional field. So, I think that was probably one of the reasons they were. Well, she was so supportive is that she wanted to see me like have a crack at something. And the other good thing out of it is Mum actually. Um, became one of our, well, she became the first employee of the business and she worked with the business for 10 years until we exited. Oh, that's fantastic. What what roles did she have? Well, as I was launching the business, she had a bit of bad luck in that we were going out in the boat one day. The ocean's pretty wild here on the West Coast and she, we hit the uh, hit a wave and she broke her foot quite badly. Oh, so anyway, she ended up in hospital and she was dad's right-hand lady on the farm. So she did the drenching, you know, she yep. was helping with the mustering and spraying and everything. So... Can't have a right hand lady without a foot. No, no. She just she could she could still do the farm books, which was lucky. But she was laid up for six months. Now, just as she got laid up, I launched IVHQ and it took off. And I needed we actually needed more countries open, so I'd jump on the plane and go over to find these countries. And I'd set up Mum with a laptop on the um, kitchen table, and she'd answer the inquiries for me. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. So she she went from that. She went into inquiries. Now, Mum was. She's almost OCD in the sense that she used to want to stay on top of the inquiry. So, right, something comes in, she's onto it. Yeah, solve it, fix it. Problem is, most of our customers are based overseas, so that you know the inquiries are coming in at two or three in the morning. And I'd be overseas, and I'd see her replying to these in Gmail, and I'd be like, "It's four a.m. What's she doing?" Wow. Um, so she got really into it, a little bit too into it. So we eventually had to take her off that. Except <laughs> a quiet word. Well, we, work-life balance, mum. You know, mum, you're off the inquiries and we're going to put you on. She'd always done the books for the farm. So she went into the um, well, the finance division, which was her. Did you give her a good title, like <laughs> vice president of finance or chief financial officer or something? Uh, head of finance. Head of finance, there you go. Yeah. Good. So, In lieu of wages, you get a great job title. <laughs> it's a good deal for you, mum. Well, no, she went on the payroll after the first year. Oh, okay, good. So she was, um, yeah, she was a paid employee after year one, but she worked, yeah, for free for the first year. Nice. Yeah, so she was head of finance for the rest of the time in the business. Did your parents sort of teach you entrepreneurship? At an early age, did they foster that in you as a child? 
Uh, yeah, probably a little bit. I think um, I was actually saying this to my wife the other day because she's from America and so she hasn't had the same sort of upbringing and life experiences we have here. And one of the, I showed her, Mum was real good at keeping things. She almost hoards. And anyway, she's been cleaning it out recently. And we she's probably the- going to listen to all this, by the way, before you start talking about OCD hoarding, etc. <laughs> you might, might want to be a bit nicer to her. So she um, she pulled out these little post books. Oh, you know the post office books. That oh yeah, you That's get right. you get sent to school on a Thursday. Put with, your ten cents in. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. With fifty cents, and you take I don't know. It must have been the your principal and they'd give them the money and they'd write it in, you know, and you saw your bank account accumulating up. Yep. But I also remember my granddad got me to, we used to do can crushing on the weekends. Oh, so yeah. so we'd crush cans and take those. And so little experiences like that. For money, presumably you'd yeah, get yeah. 10 cents or 5 cents or whatever yeah, for a crack. Like, no, nah, we did pretty good. I think we got like, um, a wolf edge of cans. You might get five bucks or something. Oh, okay. Small fortune for a five-year-old. Yeah. When I was in my teenage years, I was at boarding school and uh, my dad told me about, you know, when he was younger on the farm, he used to catch goats to make a bit of extra money. And so I got some boarding school mates out, um, one in particular, and we used to do it on the weekends. Yeah. And we were 15, 16 at the time, and we could catch, we got a big sheep and beef farm, and we could catch 30 goats on a weekend, no trouble. Um, and 30 goats was worth about $1,000. So we were 16-year-olds at high school going back after the weekend back into boarding school with 1000 bucks in our pocket between us. And Wow. Yeah, it was, so um, when you say catch, because I'm a townie, do you mean shoot them and kill them? Or no, do you no, mean no, actually round them up? No, like we'd a, actually round them up. Oh, so, really? Yeah, Dad had a little system. We'd pay him a yeah, a, just a nominal sum. It wasn't much, fifty bucks to hire the motorbike and a couple oh, of sheep dogs, and we'd use those to round them up and get them in a pen, and then someone would come and pick them up and yeah, take we, them off. Yep. Funny thing about catching goats, so you can actually get two goats together and you can tie them together by their horns, and they can't get away because they can't coordinate themselves to run down a hill, so they'll just stand there and pull against each other. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, it's <laughs> a goat catching technique. They're not the smartest things in the world. Probably with male goats, obviously, they're not very smart. So you'd, you'd have a thousand bucks as a young guy. So obviously, you knew the value of work becomes money, becomes options and freedom, really. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's because uh, a lot of people have asked me this question over the years. Did you, you know, is entrepreneurship taught or are you born with it? And I think yeah. it's, um, I don't know, I think over the years, understanding money and understanding doing this job or, you know, creating this little business provides yeah. you with that money. I think those are really valuable things for people to understand. Yeah. And it was always, you know, always in the back of my head, I've had sort of been had it taking away of what can I do to be, you know, trying to make money. Or- yeah. I think the other thing too is when you're on a farm, you're in a business. Like a farm is a business. Most New Zealanders think of it as a lifestyle thing, but the reality is it's a, they're pretty sophisticated businesses. You need to be on top of it. Yeah, they are. And you've got to, it's, um, I always say this to my mates from, that I went to university with, they're all from town. It's, I think it teaches you really good work ethic because you're always, you know, dad was always dragging us out to help with the mustering or the, yeah. you know, the docking or the crutching and, I always sort of felt like growing up, we were always working. So then starting your own business and having that later on, it's... Um, you, weren't, you weren't scared of a few late nights or nah, it seems, mornings? No, it actually seemed pretty easy because we were sitting behind the computer most of the time. That's right. Getting soft hands, probably, according to Spence. Anyway, so IVHQ, we're jumping around in time. I hope people are following along. But when now we're at IVHQ, you're a year in. Things are starting to really tick along and go well. You've hired more than just your mum now. You've probably got your cousin and your auntie Edna. So... Tell us about that growth phase because that must have been a really exciting time. Yeah, it was. We um we launched the business in August or late July two thousand and seven. So the first year we're at home on the farm. I didn't have enough money. I was, again, I still had mum and dad a, a bucket load from starting the business and this trip overseas. So I had to live with them for a year, which I always said was my big sacrifice that I made to, oh, get, to get the business. I well, bet you got lovely dinners cooked for no, you every I, day. I genuinely did. You, I got meals cooked all the time, but yeah. I still had to help dad during the day because I still needed some. You know, I had to earn a little bit of a wage because I wasn't making any money for a start. Yeah. 
But for a start, mum and dad wouldn't let me put the, um, we've got no mobile phone reception at Urity. Ah. And we've also, um, we only had dial-up internet there. So for the first year, in terms of launching an online business, it wasn't textbook. <laughs> but um, oh, Dial-up internet, online business. Oh, mate, well, not, well, not anymore, obviously, back yeah, then, yeah. just 13 years ago. Yeah. Um, but one of the big issues we had for a start is I, I needed a phone number. And obviously, with no mobile phone reception, I couldn't put my cell phone on there. But mum and dad wouldn't let me put the home phone on either because they didn't want people ringing up all the time. Yeah, at three in the morning. Yeah, exactly, which was kind of fair. So I had to put our <laughs> phone number, well, my phone number on. But what it meant is that one of the biggest issues I had in that first year was I'd work at home during the day of dad on the farm, then I had to drive out to Urunui, which is about oh, 15 minutes away, yeah. to where I could get some reception to pick up my messages that night and then go home and make these calls during the evening. So you so might you call have, people back again that left your messages oh, during mate, the night. So you might get home and I'll, you might oh get out God. there and I've got four calls and I've got one from Germany, one from Australia, a couple from America, and I'd write them in my notebook as to work out where they are and then go home. And some of them I'd be able to make that night and then others you might have to set the alarm for certain times. Yeah. I used mum and dad's phone back then. Do they know that? No, the, they the, don't. Oh. I think they probably do now because I've told a few people that story. But it's for, yeah, I can imagine, you know, because you were in the hole by $35,000 by my reckoning, but now you're starting to put long distance calls on there. You're going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> mum, mum's pretty good at the numbers too. She would have seen that happening. Yeah. Um, Daniel, can you please explain this $35 charge? <laughs> So obviously the business just kept growing and growing until the point where you could get an office in town or yeah, so move that, into professional premises. It was almost one year in, and we um we decided to move to the big smoke to New Plymouth, and that was I think you know you talked before about why do you base it down here? That was sort of the pivot with do we go somewhere bigger or do we look to stay here and keep it in Taranaki? Yeah. It looked like it had real legs, and one of the biggest decision making factors for me was just purely cost. I looked at it at the time, and I was still living at home at that stage, so you know money was still pretty tight. And yeah. the cost of actually getting a place in New Plymouth and the cost of employment in New Plymouth, yeah. and this is something that still holds true today for us. You know, We've got offices in Auckland and New Plymouth, yeah. and it's a no-brainer in terms of hiring. If we can get the right people here, we always hire here. Yeah. So that, that was one of the factors. And the other reason was that I just loved the um, I loved the place. I grew up here, and I, you know, it was a really good lifestyle. I do diving and you know, fishing. You could get out and go back to the farm easily. It was um, had good yeah. mates here, so... So we in the, the plan was to get this proper office, but I actually saw at the time that you could get in a um, there was an apartment for sale in town. So I bought this apartment, and uh, did you buy it or did your mum and dad buy it? Come on, let's be honest here. <laughs> well, no, by that time I actually had an, I actually, oh, you had some money. I had, okay. I, had, I had enough for a small deposit, mm. so I um, I bought this apartment, which became the um, the IVHQ offices for the first five years. So nice residential apartment. I'm I'm pretty sure it was okay, but we moved the team out of there at about year six when we had about. For the first six years, I had only female employees, right. and we had about seven ladies coming and going out of the this apartment um, <laughs> every day. So at that point, I think the neighbours were starting to get concerned. Sure, what, what sort of business are you running? Yeah, yet? what's actually happening downstairs? Yeah. So yeah, moved, moved there that year. Um, got our first proper employee. That wasn't my mother. Yeah. And we uh, yeah worked out of this apartment. So the the biggest issue we had in that first year was we'd, we'd launched with four countries. So. With that money that I borrowed, I went back to Kenya where I had an organization that I had to do a bit of cold calling. So I knew, I looked, did some research online and found Vietnam, Thailand, and Nepal. Yeah. I decided those were three, looking at which what other companies were doing, those were three pretty popular destinations. Yeah. And then I flew back there and basically had to go door knocking. So I looked on the, the depths of Google, page 10, found um, organizations that were doing 
either volunteer travel or something very similar. Yeah. And then would go to them with this proposal around this company that I wanted to start. So you sort of must almost turn up out of the blue and say, I'm from New Zealand, I'm setting up this business. Do you oh. want to work with me? They knew I was coming, yeah. but that's, I always say this was by by far the hardest part of getting this business off the yeah. ground, was going there with no website at the time. You know, we don't we hadn't quite launched yeah. and actually pitching this idea of what we were trying to do. Yeah. And not only that, because there had been all these inflated prices around volunteer travel, people were expecting to get paid a fortune. Ah, okay. So we basically had to say, listen, we want you to be our partner. We want to send people to you. We want you to do it for a third of the cost that you're currently doing it. And don't worry, we haven't got a website, but we can definitely send you people. Yeah. Like the reality is we went to these three countries and I think I'd ranked all the the organisations that I wanted to work with from one through to five. And I think we got one of the top ones that we wanted. Yeah. The other two countries, we ended up with number three because the others just weren't, you know, willing to have a bar of us. Yeah. The great news story out of that was out of those three countries, we ended up working through them for 10 years. And they, you know, I think at the time, the Thailand organization was receiving around 30 people a year. You know, within seven years of working with us, we were sending four to 500 people to them. Fantastic. Yeah, which was a really cool story and something really nice to see. You yeah. know, how those organisations grew alongside us. So that's a revenue stream for them, but also you're obviously doing great work then, you know, because what these volunteers are doing is having an impact on the local communities. Amazing. And this organisation was called Mirror up in um, northern Thailand, and it really did transform that area. So a huge amount of social issues up there with... Um, in Chiang Mai sort of area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chiang, Chiang Mai it is, with trafficking between countries and drug trade. And yeah. A lot, of, a lot of these issues that filter through to the families, and the amount of work that our volunteers were able to do up there was really, really cool. And to see that over a period of time, was um yeah it was really awesome fantastic so what about the customer side of it how were you without a website how were you getting the volunteers through the door or you know the virtual door and onto the plane uh, well we we did have a website by the time we launched so okay. we, I always say launch day was the day the website went live we used a company up in Auckland an agency who we worked with for the first eight years of the business uh, Spark Interactive they were oh, okay. re- really good yeah. good guys. They became good friends and they were a huge part of our success. So yeah. we've got the website live and um, I always said that it would be the website would be the making or breaking of the business. You know, we were yeah. we chose the name International Volunteer HQ because I thought it sounded large and brand. Yeah. And it, you didn't, Big corporate headquarter feeling. Oh, thing. Yeah, you didn't want people knowing it was just Dan yeah, and his yeah. mum working at the family Dan farm. Dan and his mum's family farm holidays. <laughs> no, it's not quite the same ring to it. <laughs> Well, there must have been a few setbacks on the way, though, because it's you know every time I hear you talk, I'm amazed at the growth of your business. But I'm sure there were setbacks on the way. Things didn't go well. Challenges with suppliers, challenges with some of the projects, perhaps. The first 10 years, which is where I was CEO, you know, we had some pretty big challenges. I think probably the biggest one that springs to mind is we, um, the Kenyan organisation who we worked with, their owner or their CEO, the founder James, um, became a really good friend, but in the third year, and he was the, you know, that was a big program for us three years in. So even though at that stage we had about 10 countries we were working in, we were probably sending, I'd say, 30% of them to Kenya. And then we got a phone call one night and he'd been killed in a car hijacking. Um, And he was, you know, literally he was the life and soul of that business. So that was a really big thing for us. I actually had to jump on a plane and go live there for three months just to help the team get through it and make sure that we could put in place a succession plan and have staff that could step up. And that was something that really rocked us as a business, but also that local team really heavily as well. Which And it was also, I think, probably at that age there, I was mid-20s, 25, and you're, you're six foot tall and bulletproof. Yeah. You know, the IVHQ is going fantastically, and 
you've got all these um, safety precautions for your volunteers that you talk to them about and all these steps that you take, but I think... It's all a bit theoretical, is it, until something yeah, happens? Yeah, until something like that happens, you, it sort of makes you, you know, realise how tough things actually are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a big one. I think the other, probably the other big challenge that we found is um, just the shape that volunteer travel took over that period of time. So I started this company with some really good ideas around what we wanted to achieve and how we were going to do it. And then over the 10 years, the orphanage volunteering, which used to be a huge part of what we did, became a lot more complex and complicated and there was a lot of critics out there. So the amount of work that we had to do around, because and again, there was some very, orphanage volunteering was done really poorly by a few companies, but unfortunately we all got tarred with the same brush. Right. So the amount of work that we had to do over particularly the last five years around ensuring our orphanages were legitimate, that we were working at, that they yeah. were doing good stuff and that... Yeah, you know, the volunteers weren't doing harm that were going in there. Yeah. Um, you know, it was uh, yeah, it was huge. But it also, I think, we stopped working with orphanages two years ago, which I still feel a bit, a bit sad about. We just because it's too complex, not because the need doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. I still really feel really strongly the need does exist. You know, we had some local teams that were incredibly upset about it, that lost volunteers, that were you know they were the revenue, they were the help for those orphanages. But unfortunately, it became such a complex PR exercise that. A lot of people just didn't want to associate yeah. themselves with it. It's you know, easier to step away than to, than to fight the fight, I guess. And that touches on something I was going to ask you about. You, you've obviously employed people who are very cause-driven then, and you personally must get really attached to some of the individual projects and causes and and think about, you know, you're flying in as a volunteer, you're doing a month or so and you're coming out again, but you're leaving behind poverty and deprivation and inequity. And How do you deal with the emotional trauma and how does your team deal with that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's and it's something that is probably one of the reasons I wanted to also start IVHQ is I grew really attached to the the Kenyan community that I was with for those three months. But there's a, I guess there's a big part that's not really talked about. Well, and we didn't even used to talk about it that much, which was the you know reverse culture shock. It's yeah, it's not going to Kenya. It's actually coming, it's coming back, back again. It's coming back again and having it's the, all noisy and there's traffic and it's all a bit weird and yeah, too privileged. Exactly. So one of the things that we used to do little bits about it in terms of the briefing would give people, but one of the things that I started four or five years ago now was a company called Global Travel Academy. What we were finding is people were heading away and they weren't skilled up enough or they weren't considering enough, despite everything we were trying to do around um, the briefings we were giving them, around considering the impact that they were making and the reasons why they were volunteering, but also thinking, okay, what about when I'm coming home? How do I how do I readjust? How do yeah. I make sure that I'm, you know, that I'm... Okay, go back to life as normal because it won't be. Exactly. Yeah. So we started this, another company called the Global Travel Academy, whose purpose is to basically make sure that we educate volunteers in that space around going there and becoming, being a good volunteer, making sure they're taking photos responsibly. If they're posting online, they're thinking about how they're posting and why they're doing it. Yeah. And even a more basic level, thinking about why they're wanting to do this, why are they wanting to be a volunteer? Is it because they want to pad their CV or is it because they want to give back? And a lot of those questions, I mean, you can, there's different levels of projects. And so if someone just wants to pad their CV, then we can go and find a project yeah, for them. Yeah, some nice easy ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if there's someone that's actually going over there to make a real difference and they're able to give nine months of their time and you know they're serious about it then we can actually find good projects too so part of this the thinking around this course was that if we can educate our volunteers and get them thinking about being a good volunteer before they leave then it's going to be a far more positive experience for them but also for the local community so that's still running but it's uh it's like ivhq it's been hit pretty hard by covid yeah i can imagine 
Before we talk about that, though, I mean, IVHQ ultimately incredibly successful, and you personally very successful. You won the New Zealander Entrepreneur of the Year in 2014. You were inducted into the EY World Entrepreneur Hall of Fame. I know you won the New Zealand International Business Award because I was part of the judging. Um, anyway, so, you know, you, you personally got a lot of success, but I also know you're quite a humble guy. How do you deal with success? I like being successful, but I guess it's... Well, you're not that humble then, okay. So I got it wrong, got it wrong. Scratch that bit out of the recording. But I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd, you just get on with it. Yeah. You know, there's, um, Does it spur you on to do other things, though? Does success yeah. make you go, okay, right, I've got that banked, right, what's next? 100%. Like, yeah. I, I like being busy and I like I like trying to do things. I like trying to do them to a high level. Yeah. Um, I don't know if success is um, necessarily a public achievement, but even just making sure that, you know, I think one of the things for me recently is, you know, I sold 80% of the business three years ago, and a big part of that was being able to spend more time with my family. Yeah. I think I sort of got to a point where I realized, you know, if I'm going to be successful, you know, as a person, I'm probably going to need to have a break here from, yeah. from business for a bit and actually spend a bit of time with this young family that I'm starting because yeah. it was, it's a pretty demanding role when you're in it. Um, yeah. seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and you head, even when you're home, you're not really home because your headspace is off somewhere else. So you made the call, you exited the business, or you sort of brought on a strategic investment that allowed you to dilute down a bit, yeah. and, um, but you've kept a, some shareholding by the sound of it, yeah, and so, directorship, I think. Yep, and directorship. So I sort of got to a point, well, I got to a point probably eight years in where I was um, I was pretty cooked on the business, if I'm being yeah. honest. it's a Like I said, it's an all-consuming business. Yeah. Like, you know, people always say it's your baby, and it very much is. You think about it twenty four seven. Yeah, my wife's always said this. She's like, "We'll be out for dinner, and I'll be a million miles away," which isn't great. But um, you know, you're usually coming up with your next great idea. Yeah. Um, so, so you'd have to tell her it was time well spent <laughs> <laughs> for you, not for her, maybe. No, no, but not for her. So it's um, and I like I realized I was starting to get pretty burnt out. Come about year eight, so I tried to. I started thinking about how I was going to exit then. Yeah. And anyway, we, I brought a chairman on, Ian Frame, to help me because at that stage we had no board. And I basically oh, okay. wanted a sounding board. I'd yeah. done it all by myself until then. I wanted someone to come in and sort of start thinking about, all right, if I wanted to remove myself from the day-to-day, how are we going to do that? Asking you some testing questions and making sure that you're kind of thinking a bit more broadly. That's a great yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And also just setting, like, starting to put in place some good structures for the business that we didn't always have. Yeah. And that one of the, you know, at the very base level, that just being a board. Yeah, having a monthly meeting where we get together and we think about, all right, what are we doing? How's the last month gone? What are we doing to improve? Yeah, Whereas that process has always been going on inside your head, but not yeah. necessarily. But when you externalise it and put it on paper and share oh, it with others, you exactly. Get a if, bit you of wanna, if you want to exit yourself out of the business, you need to be able to do that. So yeah. that was sort of the first step. Then Ian's been involved in a lot of buying and selling of businesses, so he was a he was a great man to have there, and he gave me basically, I think he gave me a bit of paper with seven options on it. He said, you can sell the whole thing, you can keep the whole thing, you can sell part of it, and he, yeah. he talked me through how that yeah, all the options, yeah. So, um, yeah, we did that, and we, um, I said, well, I don't want to, I, I still want to be involved, I just don't want to be involved in the day-to-day, I need to yeah. have a bit of a break. So that was um, where we landed on selling a portion to a strategic partner, uh, Mercury Capital. Nice one. And it's worked yeah. out okay so far, because that was a few years ago now, wasn't it? Yeah, it's worked out well. It's worked out awesome, except um, I don't know, right now they're probably not over the moon with it, given that the, uh, <laughs> given COVID. Oh, yeah, but that wasn't your fault. No, uh, no, no. It's been a, they're, they're really good guys, really good partners, and I think probably something like COVID is a um, it's a real litmus test around how people really are going to behave. You know, there's yeah. nothing we could do about it. And um, the board that we've got were very tight, and we got you know got our heads together and got a good plan in place. And um, fingers crossed, if this vaccine does what it says it should, then we're um, we should be fine. Yeah, and, and there will be need then. I mean, IVHQ will have an even 
more pertinent model, I think, coming out of COVID. Yeah, I think so. It'll be really interesting. I think one of the things that we're still trying to understand a little bit is what is the state of some of our programs and local oh, okay. teams. And you see on the news, you know, Bali doesn't look like it's in good shape at the moment. Yeah. So I think your comment there's you're 100% right. It's going to be a really interesting place. And hopefully when people are traveling, they're traveling and, you know, doing it for good. Yeah. Yes. And you, you might see find a whole new set of customers who want to come to you to say, look, if I'm going to travel and I'm now much more conscious about my carbon footprint or whatever it might be, I want to travel with purpose and meaning. And an organization like yours is better than a Contiki. I'm very big on this idea that every business should have a, a social purpose and should have a focus on doing good. And um, I've always believed IVHQ is probably a little bit ahead of its time in that respect. And yeah. that we're a way for people to travel and but actually travel and give back while they're doing it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think it's only going to become bigger regardless of COVID. I think, um, you know, the trends that we're seeing globally, people are going to they're going to start thinking a lot more consciously around what they're doing while they're away. Think about you now because you've diluted down to 20%. You now have got more time to spend with the family. You've got kids, haven't you? A couple of kids? Yeah, nice. three, three and one-year-old. Nice. Awesome. How are they doing? Good. Just been at swimming with a one-year-old this morning. Good on you. See, that's nice. You can spend your day swimming and checking yeah. in on investments and going to Monica's for lunch. It's all good. Yeah, no, it's good. No, listen, compared to if I reflect on where I was four years ago, my life's very different. We're still busy, but we're not busy like we were. So being, I think one of the big things for me, is, especially while they're young, you know, people say all the time, people that have got older kids, they're like, you know, treasure the time when they're young because yeah. in a flash they're... Um, yeah, because you hate them when they're older. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, no, no. Got it wrong. Yeah, big fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. Uh, good. On you. But you've got that achievement gene in you. Like you're an entrepreneur from a very early age, very successful. You, you're not built to sit around and do nothing. So how do you scratch that itch of I got to do something useful and achieve things? And yeah, good question. And um, we've started a brewery. Yeah, just as you do. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Most people would just do a bit of homebrew in the shed, but you you did it on a whole nother scale. Yeah. So we've started a brewery. It was always I don't again probably the um probably a bad sign that you want to start a brewery, but I've always wanted to, and. One of the ladies that worked with us at IVHQ, her partner, Jesse, was a brewer. Right. And he always wanted to go out and do his own thing. So once I exited IVHQ, I, I saw him at the um, social function we had that year just as well as exiting. And I was a bit pissed. And I said, oh, you know, we should get this brewery started. So that was the uh, that was the brainchild. Nice. And uh, yeah, we went from there. But again, I get, coming back to this theme of doing good, I think we sat down and one of the first things we said was, how do you, you know, we're selling alcohol. How on earth do you make it into a positive thing socially? Yeah. So we didn't get too complex. We just thought it would be really cool to do something where a percentage of our beer revenue went to a different charity every month. Yeah. And we started a thing called the 5% Project where, it's as similar as it sounds, we give 5% of our beer revenue to a different charity every month. Top line. Yep, top line. Wow. So very, it's um, it's very transparent in that respect. Yeah. It, it's been really successful, which has been cool. So each month we give away between three and $5,000 to a different charity. And it's local charities here in Taranaki, isn't it? All local ch- charities in Taranaki. The brewery's been up since May 2019, so yeah. about 18 months old now. Uh, we've given away about $55,000. So, Fantastic. Yeah, really cool. So give us a bit of a flavor of the types of projects or organizations you've Donated to. Oh, mate, you name it, we've done them. Um, one of the decisions we made early is we prefer to work with smaller organisations. Yeah. There's a group here called On The House, which is basically food redistribution. Yeah. But organisations that when we give money, it's actually going to make a real difference to them. You yeah. Know, it's not going to be a... Material difference like that will go yeah. straight to the end consumer or need. Yep, 100%. So we've, we've literally done everything. We've done Alzheimer's, we've done On The House, we've done a Kiwi project down in South Taranaki. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, um, As it's in been, the birds, Kiwi grids, good. Yep, yep. Oh, okay. Nice. And that's been a really cool thing for, I guess, that team up there. 
our purpose isn't just to brew beer and sell alcohol. It's yeah. actually, you know, we've got a bigger purpose and that we're actually giving back to our community. That's very worthwhile, but you just still do brew beer and they're quite nice, delicious beers too. So obviously it's a, you've mixed a bit of a passion project with a purpose project. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, well, listen, Jesse's a... The funny thing is, Jesse is... He is one of the best brewers in New Zealand, and yeah. he's, he's had the awards recently to back that up. But um, funny thing is, when we went and started this business with him, I had this moment about a month out from launching. I said to my wife, "I was like, I actually don't know if Jesse's any good at brewing because he <laughs> talks he, a big game. He, he hadn't actually been the well. He didn't have his name associated with the the beer at the last brewery. Yeah, I just knew he liked brewing. Yeah, and I was thinking, gee, because we've spent all this money, this thing could be a disaster if it's gonna if it tastes bad. So, but luckily. Luckily, he's a genius. And the other thing I love about it is that you've named all your brews after local Taranaki sort of hallmarks or notable things. Yeah, so I mean, we did a little bit of research with the industry before we started. And if you're if you're going out to make money, you don't go starting a brewery. That was the first thing we right. read. It's um, it's very difficult to make cash in brewing. Yeah, but. If you're going to, you need your own restaurant and bar because you need your own hospitality. Because the food's going to make you know a little bit of money. It's a bit more steady. Yeah, it's going to bring bring people in, but also wholesale. Um, by the time you sell to the supermarkets and the liquor stores, uh, your margin, right. margin gets obliterated. So you're basically giving it away. So our big thing was that we wanted to have our own venues. You know, and you, if you look at if you look recently at say at Moa, Moa's been making a loss for you know X number of years. Yeah. They've bought these hospitality ventures. Suddenly they're saying to make money. So you've got to have the hospitality ventures to make cash. But we also saw that there's this, you know, this moving trend towards people want to eat and drink locally, right? So if, yeah. they, if they're coming to Taranaki, they want to drink a local beer. They want to. It's nice. It's eat a really some local nice food. effect that's happening. With uh, people are, c- are curious about the place that they're going to. It's awesome, and yeah. the, and but we wanted to go one step further, and we thought it'd be really cool if you come here and it's like a little local history lesson. Yeah. So you drink your beer and you can find out a little, you know, a cool little story, whether it's. You know, your Fanny Phantom's lager and your Fanny Phantom was the first lady to climb Phantom's Peak or, yeah. you know, your... Um, Funny your... coincidence because it was already named after her. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, who would have thought? <laughs> wow. So, or then you got your highwayman or, you know, so there's yeah. the, we got there's some really, really cool stories. And if you want to know those stories, you have to go down to the barn and, le- and learn about them, on the you know, which is awesome. Yeah, 100%. Or you yeah. can go online and buy them too. Okay, okay. Just always be selling. Do you spend much time there yourself doing, you know, research? Uh, probably too much. No, um, initially for a start we did, Yeah, which was really cool, getting the business up and running. Now it's pretty self-managed. Jesse's the brewer, but he's also the GM. So we have we have probably, uh, we have a monthly meeting, we have a meeting every fortnight with some of the other staff. So, yeah. But no, I'd say three or four hours a week. Oh, um, okay. That's but we're good. also looking at doing down in Queenstown. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's so we're here. We, real estate's getting a bit cheaper now. Well, <laughs> relative. Um, yeah. We bought the block of land two years ago, which was uh, right at the peak. And yeah, <laughs> good one. No, it's oh, well, all good. But uh, no, anyway, we're looking to go and do that down there. So that's been taking up a little bit of time, but that's sort of the next passion project. That's fantastic. And you'll manage that remotely. Cause are you family based here now? That's you're here for, for, till the kids grow up, or at least. Or yep, yep. No, wife's from um, America, so that's probably been the biggest thing this year. Is we normally get overseas a few times right, to go yeah. back to see her family, but haven't been able to do that. But I know, based in Taranaki, we'll find an equity partner down there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're just sort of thinking build it and they will come. So we'll get it built first and we'll work out who we're working with. You must love Taranaki. I've got really good memories here growing up. So, yeah. you know, grew up on a farm, yeah. um, went to boarding school here in town. I've got really good friends from primary school, high school, after high school. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's very much the definition of home. It is. But it's also, there's something about this place, the physical environment here is, is pretty conducive to 
innovation and thinking differently and, you know, big thoughts, et cetera, too, don't you think? Yeah, 100%. Get out and about. Yeah, well, we're, you know, it's, it gets bandied around a little bit, but we're stuck out here in a limb. Yeah. And for whatever reason. Just around the corner, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Is that our, is that our yeah, slogan? That's the new one, yeah, okay. yeah. Come on, keep up. <laughs> um, oh, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, out so, on the limb's not as good, I don't think. But anyway, you, 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 you go awesome. with your one. Okay, you go with your one. <laughs> out on the limb. Taranaki. But I think for that reason, like, I reckon people here are friendly, you know, they're always yeah. and but they also have to they have to be a bit resourceful around how we do things. We're never gonna get tourists just handed to us on a plate. So we yeah. have to think a little bit about how we're gonna get them here. Yeah. We've got some issues with our main sources of income here at the moment, which are oil and gas and dairy. Yeah. Um, and we need to think a little bit about how we replace those. But you know, Taranaki people are pretty resourceful. So, so on that point, I mean, you also have a bit to do with the local community. Like I've I've seen you mentoring other businesses and sort of acting as a you know public speaking and doing these sorts of things. So do you feel a bit of a responsibility to help others in the region be successful? Uh, yeah, a little bit, but I also think it's about encouraging people and showing them that you can be successful from here as well. For the same, you know, same reason you asked those questions at the start is I think there's sometimes a preconceived idea that you need to go to a big centre to yeah. to crack it. Um, yeah. But if you can get the people, and I think the biggest issue we had here starting IVHQ is um, our techies. We couldn't get the developers that we wanted. Yeah, Developers don't like being out on a limb, I guess. But yeah. um, we, you know, apart from that, we managed to get everybody else we wanted to down here in the region. Nice. And, um, you know, and there's some huge advantages with it. So Nice. And innovation in, in Taranaki, if you wanted to jump five years, ten years ahead in New Plymouth in particular, or Taranaki more broadly, what would your aspiration be for the region? Uh, I hope we're a source of uh, clean energy for the country. Yeah. So I think you've, if you look up the road, there's the guys at Hiranga doing some really cool stuff around hydrogen. Yeah. We've got all the infrastructure here. We've got a heap of expertise from oil and gas. I hope we can utilise that in a way that it's going to power the country for the next 500 years and we can be the hub of that. Yeah. Um, but I also think we're going to go through, you know, you're seeing some really interesting trends globally at the moment around how people are eating, there's people moving towards becoming vegan, vegetarians, and um, you know we've, we've got a very heavy reliance on dairy and sheep and beef. So I think this, we're going to see a big shift here around how we're using our land and what yeah. we, you know, what we're using it for. Yeah. But I hope that we can also, um, you know, that we can actually create a bit of value in that as well, and that we, you know, there's some businesses in there that can come out of it, and we're we're not just selling to a, another company that's marketing it off overseas. We can do what a say Egmont Honey's gone and done. We yeah. have, you know, they've they've taken it from the farm, they're marketing themselves and selling into Germany. I think there's a huge opportunity, and those guys have shown, you know, that it can be done, yeah. and it can be done really successfully. That that can be um, replicated in, in different fields. Right, right. I've got top ten questions for you. Ten, these are rapid fire questions. 10 questions about Taranaki. Best place to get an ice cream? My freezer. Okay. Best surf spot? Uh, Bogworks. Bogworks, okay, good. Best nighttime location? Shining Peak. Oh, that was easy. That was an easy one, wasn't it? It was a bit of a gimme. Best thing to do at lunchtime? Go to Monica's. Okay. Best beach? Uh, White Cliffs. Oh, really? Because my wife told me to ask that one. She said everyone's going to say Back Beach. She said, don't even bother asking, they're going to say Back Beach. I mean, well, okay. White Cliffs is actually the beach that I live on. Maybe, maybe I should give something else so people don't go there. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the secret <laughs> one. Okay, don't. Forget, forget you Fitz, that. Fitzroy. Fitzroy, okay, good. Would you go north side, Stratford side, or head straight for the Rangers if you're going up the, to the mountain? Stratford side. Okay, good. What's your favourite summit or peak? Shark's Tooth, Fanny Phantoms, or Paratutu? Oh, Paratutu. Really? This is right in town. You're yeah, a bit it's lazy. Easy. Easy one. <laughs> best, uh, best event that they have here? Why mad? Why mad? Okay, good. What's one myth you think we should bust about Taranaki? Mm, it rains all the time. There's a myth. 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, it doesn't rain all the time. You're right. It rains a substantial portion of the time, but not all the time by definition. Good. Says okay. David after driving down the because oh, no, <laughs> six hours. <laughs> Final question, and I love this one. If you were right, when you were a kid at school, and you were asked to write a poem about the mountain, what was one word you would use to describe the mountain? What? Wow, you're, you're, that's really, <laughs> Sim- that's really si- simple, kid. So you're very simple. <laughs> hey, Dan Radcliffe, thank you so much for coming in. That is awesome. You are the entrepreneur par excellence. Some people would call you the Elon Musk of Taranaki. Oh, Jeepers, he's mad, isn't he? Well, <laughs> look in the mirror, pal. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Cool, thank you. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks to Venture Taranaki for making this all happen. I'm sure some of you listening will be guests on this show one day. So if that is you and you have a great idea that could see you being the next Dan Radcliffe, make sure you check out Venture Taranaki's Power Up website and get in touch with one of the team. No matter where you're at on your enterprise journey, Venture Taranaki is able to support you and help you power up your idea, your existing enterprise, or your startup. They offer awesome services such as one-on-one startup clinics, mentoring, workshops, business and investment advisor support. This podcast has been proudly produced in Taranaki by Raw Collective. And lastly, please review and subscribe. It helps others find us. Kakite.